Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 360th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Suzanne Powell. Suzanne is a senior financial advisor at Meridian Wealth Management, an RIA based in Lexington, Kentucky, where she oversees approximately $110 million in asset center management for nearly 150 client households. What's unique about Suzanne, though, is how she grew to more than $100 million of AUM by intentionally organizing her schedule from month to month throughout the year, clustering client and nearly all of her prospect meetings in the fall and the spring, and allowing her to spend the remaining six months away from the office and with her family, while still not needing to spend much time on prospecting by leveraging, and then almost fully automating her responses to, a steady flow of smart asset leads. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Suzanne has been able to drive client growth through her lead generation service, a smart asset, and dials the lead flow up and down depending on how busy her month is. The way Suzanne has set up a series of email and especially text message automations that allow her to convert a very high percentage of smart asset leads into clients without needing to be available to immediately reply to inquiries herself. And how Suzanne has customized the targeting of which lead she buys from Smart Asset to ultimately generate nearly $70 million of new assets over the past five years for less than $100,000 of cumulative marketing spend. We also talk about how Suzanne structures her weekly meeting schedule to balance the need to have five or six meetings a day during her busy seasons while still having time to prepare for each meeting and complete follow-up tasks. How Suzanne uses a standardized client meeting agenda to stay on track and ensure each meeting fits within the allotted one-hour time block. And how Suzanne leverages technology, including a large retractable television monitor located next to her desk, to present and adjust client financial plans during the meetings instead of presenting them with a physical plan and saving on essential meeting prep time during her busy meeting season. And be certain to listen to the end, where Suzanne shares how she entered the financial advisory industry without a bachelor's degree and how she earned her degree 20 years later by taking college courses while working full-time as an advisor to now officially be able to become a CFP certificate. How bringing her own consistent, authentic presence has allowed Suzanne to convert prospects into clients even years after their first contact with her. Because as Suzanne notes, the fact that someone doesn't become a client today doesn't mean they aren't still watching and keeping up with you. And why Suzanne has taken an approach of not trying to work and save for retirement as a time to enjoy when she gets there, but instead has structured her busy season, light season approach to client meetings to allow for more space to enjoy trips and time with her family now instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Suzanne Powell. Welcome, Suzanne Powell, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's episode and getting to talk a little bit about, I guess as I view it, just building our our practices with more intentionality. One of the fascinating things to me about the financial advisor world, and 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 particularly for those of us that that choose to go out into more independent channels and really like get to hang our proverbial shingle, is you get to decide how you want to make the business. And and for some of us, that's a function of uh, you know, I would, there's certain tech that I want to use and I want to be able to control my tech or there, there's a, a certain client experience that I want to create and serve clients a certain way. And, and I, I choose to run my own practice so that I can make it the way I want it and not have to do it the, the way the parent company tells me. 
But for some of us, I find it's almost a more personal level that I just, I want to be able to structure client meetings the way I want. I want to be able to stack meetings the way that I want. I want to be able to manage my time and what hours I'm spending at the office and what hours I'm not spending at the office in a way that we can control more. And I just, I know you have created a practice with, as, as I would frame a lot of intentionality around what time you spend in the business, where you spend it and what you're doing. And so I'm just, I'm excited to talk about how that takes shape, how you even figure out what you want it to look like. Sometimes we're not even sure what we want it to be when, when you can make it anything. It's actually really hard to pick sometimes what it's, what it's going to be when you can make it anything. So, uh, you know, just the, the journey that you've been on in how to shape your practice to, to, live the life that you want to live, I, I think is, is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that <laughs> that comment. I'm not sure that it, I determined that it was fascinating, but apparently it's been um, definitely the discussion point when I meet with other advisors. So, so I think to kick off, just why don't you start out by painting a, a little bit of a picture of just your advisory practices that exists today just just so we can understand overall like where where you're situated now so i when i was at old uh, my old firm which was chase they had a practice they would intentionally implement where you called your birthday client like the clients for the birthday and that was who you would meet with that month as like your ongoing meetings, because they always want you, you know, meeting with people. And what what would happen is over time, any of those June, July, August babies would cancel, reschedule, not want to schedule, mostly because they're summering and having vacations, living their life. And then something similar would happen to me November, November, December, and January, where between holidays life stuff, weather, um, new year, just sorry, you're not my priority right now. They would not schedule. And so this has been going on for 13 years now, back in 2010, you know, I realized that that birthday review system was not working. And I started pushing all my meetings to basically March, April, May, with the goal of being done by Memorial Day weekend. And then September, October, November, with the goal of being done that Friday before Thanksgiving. And so I have basically been meeting with six to seven clients a day in those six months of time, which now has been deemed surge meetings and has become a very popular uh, trend and format for a lot of advisors. And I've been doing this for 13 years because it's just what worked for me. And, and and then of course because I'm meeting with clients in that six month period, I don't client face in November, December, January, and March, April, and May. Or you know, I'm sorry, the opposite, June, July, and August. So I basically have six months where unless I have a client referral, I'm not purposefully marketing, I'm not client facing, and I have freedom, which with having children is important. So it worked out, but it was also a function of how clients wanted to utilize me. And that's when they wanted to see me and it, it, it just works. So, so help us understand um, 
size of the practice overall? Like how, how many clients are you doing with this with? What's the the overall um like client count, asset base revenue, however you, you measure my households. For, yeah. Yeah. I currently, you know, obviously the market's down in September, so your your millions peel away just a little. But if I if I count all my assets and annuities and clients that have paid me for planning, which I don't even count their AUM, but um, they do count as a client with time. I have about 150-ish households somewhere in there, but I would say at least two dozen of those folks are either super, super young and they they don't organically meet with me twice a year or on the other end, a couple of them are um, in assisted living and you know, ending their near the end of their life and they don't necessarily meet with me either. So I would say most, most of the meetings are happening in a block of about 120 households and I meet with them twice a year. Okay. And in that spring and fall, spring and fall cycle. Yes. And if for some reason, because there, it does happen that I let a few fall through. If they Mm -hmm. fall through in spring and I don't see them, then by fall, we're, we're holding them to the meeting. Like my assistant's calling. To, to like, to make sure like you, you need to come in. We need to do our meeting. You missed the yes, last one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. In. It minimum of once a year, you know, that's kind of, you know, the SEC standard of care when you're a yeah. fiduciary and I would like to operate from that model. And in fact, I even had a client say, is this an absolute, can you show me where that once a year guideline is and I actually sent her a little screenshot of the SEC paragraph that sort of suggested that when you have a fiduciary advisor, you meet at least once a year to make sure everything's the same. And she said, oh, okay, all right, then I'll come in. <laughs> and I was like, all right, um, uh-huh. yeah, I need to meet with you. So, yeah. So so what is the asset base or revenue base for the the practice at this point? I'm I'm nearing a million. I um I was actually telling your folks that based on this quarterly billing, of course, with the yeah. September drop a little, I'm I'm probably a little off. But based on um, okay. money that I get in for my UL's annuities, and then my planning fees on top of my billing, um, I'm I'm near a million. My goal was to get over a million in this uh, trailing twelve. I'm. Um, Hoping I still get there because I still yeah. have some plan. Like I just presented a plan package to a new prospect on Saturday, so we'll see. We'll see how I end up the year. But yeah, pes- pesky, pesky markets keep throwing us off. Yeah, we'll yeah. try to get to those milestones. <laughs> yep. So, so as you go through these uh, these meeting cycles, so you said off. Uh, uh, you're basically trying to go through all 120 households that are in the kind of active ongoing phase every every meeting cycle with i'm sure the caveat a, a handful are unavailable and really can't meet so you 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 push them out to the spring to fall or fall to spring uh but that's a, that's a lot of meetings so what is what does the meeting structure look like for you when you're in these December, January, February, uh, oh, sorry, other way, uh, March, April, May, and then September, October, November meeting cycles. 
it's a, it's a deluge. Like it's an onslaught. I do this to myself on purpose though. And so my assistant all the time is like, I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you do this. I fast. I don't eat lunch. Um, I fast all the way to dinner. (laughs) So I will have six or seven meetings a day. I try to be done by three, keep that block from three to four open for my notes, trading and all the stuff I need to kind of sort through by the meetings, you know, that I've had that day, but it will start early. And then on occasion, of course, it, it peels off onto Saturdays. And um, there are Tuesdays where I will willingly work later for some of my clown, like clients that are in the government or, you know, can't make it during normal operating hours. So okay. my Tuesdays can be till six, seven or eight. Um, so yeah, it's, it's back to back. I'm walking one client out while the other one is sitting in the chair. My assistant's entertaining them. I say goodbye to that one and I pull the next one. Um, and like a doctor though, I'm trying not to like run over, right? I'm really yeah. trying to cut the meeting off at like 58 minutes to where right. I'm not organically going two minutes over, then four minutes over, and then six minutes over and eight minutes over. Right, right. Um, and some are Zooms now. They were, they used to be all in person and now I can't seem to get some of my clients back. Uh-huh. I beg them to come back. I, we have even a new office we just moved into. Like, come see the new space. Let me hand you my new book. Come in. And they're still on Zoom, um, which helps. Is there, and is there any pattern for you of like who is insisting on staying on Zoom and not willing to come back? I think it's more to do with their health and mobility. As, as some of my clients, like one lives out of state and he used to drive into Lexington. We would go to lunch together. He can't anymore. And then I have another client couple in Frankfurt. They're in their late eighties now. It's just not worth the drive for them if they've got the technology and they've been used to using it. Interesting. So it's, it's mostly just aged clients that struggle with that. It's not the younger people, it's the older people. But they had learned through COVID that Zoom and FaceTime was how they could stay connected to their family, which they were typically used to seeing and couldn't see. So they had to, with the learning curve with COVID is right. they had to learn and now they get to apply it to different scenarios, which I'm the benefactor of, I right. guess. And I, I'm appreciative of it, you know, because before that, nothing like that would have been an option. So, so help us understand more how this uh, it flows during meeting seasons. You said you have you have these these really intense days that you get started early, and you're just stacking like six plus meetings consecutively. So are these all one hour meetings, like just nine a.m., ten a.m., eleven a.m., twelve a.m., one p.m., two p.m.? Like those are my six slots and I run from nine to three and, and, and that's my day. And then I've got meeting notes and trading and, and wrap up at the end of the day. Exactly. And if for some reason, cause I always block that three to four time slot off, like to where if you go on my Calendly link, you don't get that option. And my Calendly is defaulted to be on the hour. So two years ago, I would let people do, um, two years ago, I'd let people do half hour and then what was happening was some of them would pick the half hour versus on the hour and I'd only have maybe four meetings that day and it wasn't very efficient. So I control to where now it's just on the hour. 
And um, if for some reason someone says, hey, I really need a Wednesday or I really need a Thursday, then I will free up my three to four for that person to where I'm overflowing to a seventh meeting. And then I can just do meeting notes and trade after hours to have them settle and, you know, at open. Um, but yeah, it's full blown. I have agenda. I send the agenda out ahead of time. I ask them if there's anything that we're not going to cover on the agenda that they'd like to add to the agenda. And then if they have outside accounts, which some do, I ask if they can send me just updated statements values so that I can sort of get that into the plan if I have time before the meeting. But most of the time, they got my email, they looked at the agenda, they had nothing to add, and they walk in with the updated values to where part of that time I'm committing, which is also in the agenda, is updating the plan, updating the assets, making sure that all the tickers are right because some of them trade and we used to own Boeing and now we own Clorox, whatever, you know, so. So so you're actually doing plan updates and let's look at the updated numbers in, in the meeting. That's not a meeting prep thing for you. That's an in the meeting update. Yeah. If I can, I try, but most of them show up with it. I'm not sure if that they're just not trying to have homework or they don't want to put any thought into it till beforehand. But if I can, I do take some time at, at night or, you know, in the morning before I start at nine with my meetings to get what I can in to where that's not part of our hour. But most of the time, yes, it's happening. And it's like the second line item on my agenda, you know, review plan, update assets, discuss income. It's it's part of what they're used to seeing. I actually start uh, with, I was telling Megan last year, uh, one, of your, one of your amazing people, that I start with the plan up on my screen at their success rate. And then that way they kind of see where they are because I use Money Guide Pro. So they kind of see their gas meter. And then, hey, is there anything that's not on the agenda? What do you want to talk about if, if it's not on the agenda so I can write it down? And then immediately we go into how's your money? How's the cash flow? And then I kind of back into their goals. I click back, go to goals and say, oh, look, you were going to do a home improvement this year. You were going to do the RV this year. You were going to buy the car. Is any of that happening? Yes, no, ping it down to the next year. You know, if they did, I'll say, okay, great. How much was it? Because what if my math was wrong? So it's it's very much in in that meeting, it's an organic process where we're updating goals, spend, making sure the cash flows are right, making sure the assets are accurate. Um, I-bonds, you know, for the first time ever, yep. I'm having to add I-bonds onto their asset page. And, you know, I'm asking them specifically about them. Hey, by the way, did you buy the I-bonds after that email I sent? Oh yeah, yeah, we did. Okay, great. How much, you know? So, yeah. So, so on the agenda, what, it sounds like you have like a standing template agenda and then they, they add their stuff to it when they've got things they want to cover. So what, what else is on the sort of the agenda by default for you? So reviewing the plan, you know, that's that kind of starts at the beginning, update it, talk about income, upcoming expenses, you know, making sure I have them them the money they need. 
Um, and then we go into their portfolio allocation, you know, based on their risk questionnaire. Are they off? Are they on the right percentages? If they are off, you know, hypothetically, let's say we were overweight large cap and we're underweight international by money guide pro standards. We have a quick conversation, you know, are we okay with that? Are we comfortable with that? Should we just leave that alone or should we rebalance? Cause you're supposed to be a growth and income model, but you're really scoring more towards growth. So really maybe you're supposed to be a 60, 40 and you're verging on not just a 70, 30, but like an, you know, an 80, 20. Um, how do you feel about that? Do we need to do something? It, of course, it depends on the time of year and, and just sort of the expectations overall with clients and state of the market, state of the world. Um, then we go into product specific stuff. So if they have annuities with me or other people, if they have life insurance IULs with me or other people, we sort of talk about how their taxes panned out for the year because typically by, especially this meeting, they have their taxes done, not always by their spring meeting, do they have them done? But if we're not withholding enough, I'd like to know if we're over withholding, I would like to adjust. And, um, and then we're going into conversations about trusts if they've gotten it done. Cause I keep track of who's, who keeps saying they're going to, and who right actually does. Uh-huh. And if I have to send them attorney names again for the third time or, or they're like, oh, no, guess what? We finally did it. We finally did it. Um, so that that's kind of a, a just a check. Beneficiary designations happens at that point where I go in to Schwab, which is who I clear through and check their beneficiaries, make sure I have them right, make sure the percentages are right. And then usually I wrap up with, oh, hey, by the way, are you getting my Tuesday talks? Do you open them? Do you look at them? Do you read them? Because I send a weekly email with just some topic of conversation. And then we wrap. I ask them, my wrapping language is, oh, did you park in the parking structure? Okay, great. Did you bring your parking pass with you? Because that's part of my autumn, my email, my confirm is to make sure they bring it up with them. Great. Can I have it? I validate it with my phone uh, and, and um, walk them out as I'm validating. And so it's just, it's that's just my closing statement. <laughs> Hand me right. your parking. That's, it's time to go. <laughs> yep. And that, that's, that's the sort of the good, good verbal cue when you're trying to figure out, right? Just that, that, that dynamic of how, how do I wrap up this meeting? Cause I really need the clients to kind of wind down because I've got another meeting coming up, but I'm trying to do it mm-hmm. kindly and professionally. It's like, so did you park in the parking structure? Let's get that parking pass validated. Yeah. And the Roth way. conversions are in there too. And then, you know, if people have moved, life's happened, someone's lost a parent. So money's come in. That all is happening as part of reviewing the plan typically, because as I go in to look at assets, we're talking about, oh, uh, oh, by the way, my parent passed and I've got 60,000 more in my savings. I need to know what to do with. And so there are other subtopics that are happening inside of some of those broader topics, but that's basically the flow overall. So I'm, I'm, I'm struck by just where and how you're using planning software, you're using money guide in the process that <clears throat> the meeting starts with money guide results up on the screen, I guess, screen shared if you're Zoom on the on the on the big screen, if it's in person, the conference room. And so you're 
<clears throat> you're looking at success rate. You're looking at whether goals are on track. If they've brought statements with updated numbers, you're literally just punching in updated numbers there. And then we all get to look right there on the spot of how are we doing? Are we still on track? Is there anything very off track that we need to talk about? Uh, and that that just happens right there in the meeting. It does. Yeah. I used to print them. So back at you know, bank one slash chase when I was a financial advisor and you were doing plans to gather assets, you would print out basically a PDF of a report and you would hand it to them and you would have a copy for yourself and you'd have a copy for them at the other side of the table yep. and we'd kind of flip through the pages together. But here's what was happening. My clients were throwing it on their back seat when they got into the car and they were never looking at it again. And that's just a point in time. That was just your assets today. By tomorrow, you're going to make some other amount of money than what my software has hypothesized. And so it was wasting paper. No one was looking at it. They were purposefully using our time together to be those temperature check points. Otherwise, they have other things to do. They, they want to go live life and spend the money they've talked about spending and spend time with their family. They don't want to commit traditionally, unless you're an engineer, they don't want to commit <laughs> a ton of brain power to reviewing right. the pieces of paper. So I learned really 10 years ago to quit printing them. That is not relevant. Keep it on your screen. It makes it easier for them. It's more like a living, breathing document, and it just saves everyone the stress because sometimes I think even my clients thought, oh, should I have should I have been doing something with this? It felt like homework. They were. I even had a client tell me that she almost felt guilty that she didn't look at it. Mm. Isn't that why I have you, Susie? You know, isn't this yeah. what this is for? Um, I, am I supposed to be looking at this? I was like, good point. Good point. No, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter to you, then don't look at it. It's just something we were supposed to do. It's what we were told we were supposed to do in order to make ourselves look more professional to where you buy in and work with us. Um, I've already got buy-in, you know, and yeah. I think they actually prefer seeing it all online and seeing it up and going through the stuff together, the goal spend together. Like, of course, four years ago, what I had thought out for a car. So most of my clients are trading in cars about every six to eight years. And what I had as their goal spend for a vehicle was $25,000. That math is not the same now. I'm yeah. having to go in that input and go, ooh, 25, that's not going to do it. How about 45? Now I have to change it to 45, which has been the last couple of years. Um, so when I do those things in the moment, then they're like, oh yeah, yep, that's exactly right. Okay, great. That looks right. That spend looks right. That home improvements look right. And so they like having the dialogue, not worrying about what's on the paper. I'm always fascinated by how these things add up as well, particularly for those of us that are are just re really good and rigorous about <clears throat> our 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 client meetings and doing what we do for all the clients uniformly. You know, if it if it if it takes like 10 minutes to input the data, print the plan, actually, you know, get it properly printed and put it together. However, you're going to um, staple it or bind it together. Like just, if it takes that 10 minutes to prep that, 
times 120 clients times two meetings a year is 40 hours. Let me do the math. Like it's 40 hours of prep time for the meeting, which is basically like when you stop printing the plan in advance and you put it on the screen instead and just make it part of the meeting, you get back a week of vacation. Yeah. And it's more relevant. It really adds up. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily mean I'm not looking at some stuff on occasion here and there as they email me something or say, hey, we did this, we did that. I'll go in that day. I get an email from somebody, oh, by the way, we did the roof and it was $13,000 and I will make sure that I've cash flowed it properly. But 95% of the updates are happening in the meetings. And they also have client access I can see when someone's logged in. I have about six clients that are really good about going in and editing on their own to take yeah. that load off of me, but that's not yeah, obviously like, the majority. Yeah, six. Like, yay. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Not Thank a lot, um, but they like playing with it. They, they like the nuances of it. You know, when they, like one of my clients started a pension, she went in and edited it because the amount that we were assuming was slightly different. I was like, okay, sounds good. Not that, not that the $50 mattered, but all right. So as you're doing these, uh, these meeting clusters at at six a day, do you do this all five days a week when you're in meeting mode or do you still have like a a day or more that you're prepping or, or just taking a breather for yourself? How, how, how many days in the week do you stack these? It was five until the fall. So my, um, my husband and I, we have six kids between us and wow. Un- yeah. Unfortunately, the, my, his four children lost their mom over the summer. And because we used to have some time together during a week, we now are with children all the time. And I, I determined just recently, like last month, when I started my first week of <laughs> surge meetings, that I missed him. I was pretty sad because we're coming home to kids coming off a bus now when that didn't used to happen. And so there's a lot of changes in our inside the family dynamic. And I have now set aside my Fridays to where I can still work from home, get stuff done, catch up on notes, but at least I get to occupy his presence, yeah. spend some time together and, uh, and connect a little. So I block Fridays off. It never used to be that way. It was full five days plus some Saturdays plus Tuesday nights. And I've now protected Fridays. I have some clients that have reached out to me and said, hey, only Fridays will work. And I actually say, I'm sorry. I am not available Friday. What does Tuesday night look like? What does Saturday morning look like? Um, Because I want to protect the kids are basically off into school between eight and three. (laughs) So I'm like, I need to just protect this little slot of time so I can spend time with my husband. Even if we're just sitting next to each other doing work together, at least it's something, you know? So, so how many weeks does it take you to get through those? Cause I'm struck if you're, when you're at as many as six plus a day, plus some Saturdays and, and, 
and Tuesday nights, if you were stacking these five five days a week, like it must take like it sounds like it wouldn't take that long to get through everyone just when you're cranking 20 to 30 meetings a week like you can get through 100 plus clients in four or five really intensive weeks yeah yeah you can so when i send the email the way calendly works if you say i send an email out in late august my client would click on the calendar and they'd pop up and it would say sorry no available meetings this month and you'd have to purposely click a button to scroll to september so i learned pretty quickly uh, to stop sending my, hey, it's time to schedule email in August with the intent of meeting by September 1. Now my emails go out on September 1, 8 a.m. and on March 1 at 8 a.m. So they see that full month without an extra click. And just this logistical stuff, but it was it made a difference. People were giving me feedback. Hey, there's nothing available in the calendar. I'm like, go the arrow scroll over. So September gets really full really quick. All the time slots are gone. So I'm usually even, sending them. Go ahead. Even though you're trying to fill September and you don't send it until 8 a.m. on September 1st, you, it sounds like you don't have a problem getting clients to qu- quickly fill the calendar and the gaps that are there. Immediately. I don't even, I have a, I think I have a 24 hour block to where if they pulled it up on September 1, the earliest they could schedule would be September 2nd. Like they can't schedule that day, but they could literally schedule the next day. So yes, immediately they're getting in and I'm getting emailed with every appointment that's scheduled. So it's just boom, 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 boom. My inbox is stuffed with 37 emails by noon. And they've picked various days, some September, some October, I don't know, it's up to them. But by mid-October, I'll start getting a little light. I'll notice I'm not six a day. I'm like two or three a day. And I'll send a reminder email out because I've sort of head counted who's in, who hasn't showed up yet. And I'll say, hey, you haven't scheduled yet. And here's the link again. And then it hits hard again, <laughs> like the two days where all of a sudden I'm boom, 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 boom for end of October, early November. And then I have a couple stragglers that I have to call or you know, purposely get a hold of that will fill in usually like that second week of November, usually by things that week before Thanksgiving, I'll go through the list with my assistant and say, I really need so-and-so in, I'll really need so-and-so in, like, can you go ahead and call them? But if for some reason there's some been some people who just didn't commit, if I met with them in the spring, and I know enough about all my people to know where they are in life, what they did this summer. I mean, I know everybody. Some of them, a lot of them, are even my Facebook friends. So they know what I'm doing. I know what they're doing. So if for some reason I know that someone's out of town or they're on a cruise or they're just really busy, I'll leave them alone. I'll just let them ping to spring. But there's usually about a half a dozen calls that Connie needs to make with some people where, no, I really do need to see them. Like they don't just get to not schedule. Connie's your assistant, I presume. Yes, yes. So when does the, like, how does the prep work happen for all these meetings? Like, are, do, are you, is there anything that you prep and come in with from, you know, reports or deliverables or anything? And just how, how do you even mentally prep for like which client is this and what things was I supposed to be talking about when you're just 
stacked straight up like I'm wrapping the old client at the prior client at 58 58th minute on the hour and the next one's already sitting there in my waiting room. Well, there's a couple things I do um, as we're winding down because I take my laptop and I bring it onto this big screen. I have like a lift cabinet to where the screen goes up and down. So I'll take the screen down. Um, a lift, maybe- like like a. I don't think I've seen this. So like like a standing desk that goes up and down, but it's your monitor screen that goes up and down. Right. So I have this really. I don't want to say it's about a six foot long beautiful wood encasement around a 55 inch TV screen that when I push a remote, the screen comes up and turns. And when I push a remote, the screen goes down. So it's hiding the screen and it's on the side of my desk. And I keep it up for the meetings. I turn my screen on, I bring their money guide up, I bring the Schwab accounts up, I bring advise on up which I use for our contact management software. And then Chankin Analytics is something I also use. So sometimes I'll have that up. And so the screen will be up when they walk in and their plan will be up. And then as we're sort of winding down into the accountant part of the conversation, the estate part, and I've already touched on beneficiaries, I'll click my remote and I'll bring the TV down to where I, I sort of get to turn and face them better. So, so this is an, an angle. Up- up and down, like height. So you're looking up at the screen versus having an eye level. Like pulling it down means like it's it's hiding itself inside the desk. Is this a like? Yeah, it's it, it the, comes up out of the case and then it like retracts itself back into the case. Exactly, but but it's yeah, it's they do have to look up a little to look at the screen, but it's not like above my head on a wall, super far away. Yeah, because some of my clients don't have the best sight. I was trying to make the screen as big as I could and close to them to where they could actually see what's on the screen without trying to pretend. But but why not just leave it out? Like why the, why the Heidi, the Heidi screen? Well, I actually did. So pre COVID they used to sit at my desk on the other side of my desk where we were sharing the same 20 inches of desk and I would just turn my monitor. And then with COVID I had to social distance. So I got some really comfy, big high back chairs that that rotate and they're further away from my desk. They're about six and a half feet away, maybe six. And I put a big TV screen literally on my desk. And then I was working off this 18 inches at the end, very, very awkwardly. But two, two feedbacks I got, which is these are the best chairs ever. I never want to go back to those things you had at your desk. And oh my goodness, Susie, this screen is so much easier to see. We were always so embarrassed that we couldn't see your monitor Mm. and that we really couldn't see what was on it. It was so consistent. And I was like, why didn't you say something? I thought my 17-inch monitor was great. And they're like, yeah, no, please. But it was really inhibitive to me when I wasn't client-facing. I have this giant heavy old monitor on my desk. And so I was like, there's gotta be a thing. And then, you know, you see celebrities like their (sighs) TVs, their houses, and some of them have these lift TVs where they were coming out of the wall or they were coming out of the floor. They were coming off the Uh foot of their bed. And so the foot of the bed one, I was like, I know I can find something like that. And there's this family in Tampa, Florida, and it's 
like .com or something. I don't know what the URL is, but I ordered one and it's amazing and they love it. And it also looks professional and I can bring it up and put it away intentionally. So for instance, if I'm talking with a new client and I know that we're not really going to get into packaging and it's just an informal conversation, I don't have a screen out at all. I make it feel like homey, like they can just talk. So so the base of the, so am I understanding the the base of the TV that it's like retracting into basically is your desk so that when it's retracted, you have your desk space back? It's separate. So my desk is, you know, typical L. Okay. One part of my L is that standing desk piece and then the front part doesn't move. That's used to be where they sat. And then this lift cabinet is literally parallel to my desk. It runs long along the whole backside of my desk. So when the TV comes out, it's parallel to my desk and then it turns and it faces them. And it's really cool and not loud. And they think it's amazing. And they're like, wow, this, like all the guys in the office, all the other advisors are like, whoa, like (laughs) your presentation is spot on. The lift cabinet is uh, is its own thing now, but the way that I transition my clients, when I put the, the cabinet down, I kind of wrap up the conversation while I'm talking, I'm sort of closing out their screens and I'm bringing up the next person's information, but they're not privy to it because they're no longer looking at the screen to where I'm not bringing up. John's information as I'm walking Joni out the door. That would be very tacky. But by the time I walk John out and bring Joni in, her information's on my screen, and then I can just bring the TV back up. So there's a whole transition that happens where I can make sure that the information on the screen belongs to only the person and that they're not inadvertently looking at someone else's information because I haven't had a chance to toggle over yet. So I get that for just transitioning the information that's on the screen. It was like, so so the next client sees the next thing. I guess I'm just trying to understand how, how do you do your portion of the prep, right? Just the I mean, that many clients one after the other, just keeping track of who am I meeting with next and like what's the issue that we need to be covering here? What, you know, uh, often clients have some something we've been working with them on that we need to um, be revisiting and digging into further. So, just are you able to keep all that in your head? Is there a separate prep process you go through? Like, how do you get in the mental state of remembering who's who and what's what when you have this many? client meetings stacked. I have a killer memory. I do. It was so creepy when I worked at the bank. I would remember people's social security numbers and telephone numbers and addresses. It's not as good as it used to be because I also have more people to keep track of. But I do use the time between three and four to mitigate, trade, do the things I needed to do for that day. I'm also emailing Connie in the con- in the meeting. So if we decided to do, like for instance, two weeks ago, I was doing a conversion for a client. It's going to be about 70000 I have to pick the tickers. I have to pick the quantities. And I am composing the email to Connie 
while we are meeting, just like a doctor would while you're in the meeting. So the doctor's there and he's sending the scripts to the nurse and he's sending this order to this specialist and he's doing all these things and he's working on his iPad. I pull the agenda up on the screen. I type in the notes as we're talking to some degree. I do really try to be forward facing and engaging as best I can. So I'll sort of listen, 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 not type pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And then there will be a point where I pivot, type really, really fast and sort of dump it onto the screen. And I'll tell them ahead of time, you know, I used to have to write things on a folder back at Chase. They wanted everything written. And now with this contact management software, I need to to have it all input. And if I let the clients get away from me, it's really hard by three o'clock to remember the specifics of each note. So I type it all into an agenda and then I go and I basically print a PDF, name it, whatever their name is, and I immediately email it to Connie and say, hey, upload this to advise on. And then I've emailed Connie if we need a beneficiary change because I need her to hurry up and bring me the form while we're in the meeting, addresses, if there's been if we need money, which is always a constant thing, how much we need money, how much when we need it. And so Sometimes that's all in one email, just here's our to-dos. Sometimes it's a couple different emails because it's, oh, wait, hold on. And then I have to send something else, something else. But if for some reason I can't do that, then I use that three to four block of time to do those things. But then I'm also using that block of time to look forward at next, next day, get all my emails out if I need to. I do have automations for some stuff. Ask some specific questions to clients. Remind them of where to park. Pull files. If I like, if clients have annuities and insurance products, there's files. I keep notes still in folders. I know which clients I keep notes on and which clients are electronic. And so I'll kind of give Connie the list of, hey, for tomorrow's meetings, three in person, two are a Zoom, one's a conference call. I need folders for so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. Can you also have this form ready? Because I know they've moved. Can you have this thing ready for me? Because I know they're going to need this and we don't have a money link set up. All of that's happening before she leaves at 4.30. So then when she walks in at 8.30, she's got from 8.30 to 9 to do those things if she didn't do it before she left the day before. And that's how I kind of keep up with it. And then on Mondays, for the client meetings Mondays, I'll use the time on Friday that I've blocked off to do any other projects. And there is an occasion where I need to still finish some planning, look at the model, determine percentages of asset classes, and I'll use my time on Friday for that. So what if you have prospects? Like how does the growth new client part work? A, if if you're in sort of like buried in this meeting cycle for two to three months a year, twice a year, or if, if you're already stacked to the brim with six plus meetings, I'm envisioning, you know, certainly there's no more time for marketing activities. It's hard to even have time to meet with a prospect. How does growth work? What happens if... Pro- prospects yeah. are are showing up during these meeting cycles. So I smart asset lead and I've been doing that since October of 2018. In my leads, I turn on and off with the surge meetings. I don't prospect in the summer and I turn my lead flow off December 1 
and I I'm usually about two weeks out. There's there's organically a few time slots inevitably that never got filled in a week. There are some weeks where they're stacked through and I can tell I'm not going to have any time for a lead meeting if I got a smart asset email that said we matched. But I can free up time on that three to four if I want to, and I often do. I can also push to Saturdays. But most of my energy right now is prospecting in the villages since that's where I opened up my second office. And I know I can travel there in October, November. And so when I turn my smart asset lead flow on for that zip code, I basically meet with those clients on Saturdays, some of it on Sundays. They're totally great and happy and cannot believe that I'll meet with them on a Sunday and they trip over themselves to get in on Sundays. And my Calendly's for client reviews are Monday through Thursday availability only. And so when you're a prospect, you have a different link. Those Florida leads have a different link and they see my availability on Saturdays and Sundays once I've booked my flight and I know when I'm going to be out there. And so, for instance, I was there this past Saturday on the 7th, nine meetings. I did not finish until 6.30. Nine meetings on a Saturday. I had nine meetings back to back. Did not finish until 6.30, just in time to grab some chicken lo mein from the Chinese place next door and sit down to watch the UK football game, which was atrocious. But um, I do this to myself. I enjoy it. I like it. It's my tempo. And I had three prospects on Saturday from Smart Asset Leads, and I had six client reviews. So I'm trying to understand, I guess, the the smart asset dynamic. Well, all right, so two things. One, part of what I'm hearing here is you don't you don't live a cadence where like there's six months that are uh, client meetings, and then in the other six months you do marketing and growth stuff. Your smart assets and lead activity is stacked on top of the client surge meeting time. Like you put all of that in one intense meeting zone. Am I understanding that correctly? I intentionally do not want to work six months of the year currently with my kids at 12, 14, 16. And yes, I believe at some point, once I get the littlest off to college, I'll really ramp it up <laughs> and go longer and maybe not block so much okay. time off. But yes, you're right. Six months of the year I'm working and basically six months of the year I don't want to have to be in the office unless I get a client referral. I can't control when those come in. Uh, they do happen. Thankfully, my clients are happy. They love me. And so there may be a month where I've gotten one referral. There may be a month where I've gotten three and so then I do make the time for those. I mean, that might literally be like a one-hour meeting in the off-season. So, all right. So I want to come back to the off-season in a moment. But but first, I want to understand more on the smart asset end because my understanding for smart asset, most advisors who've been active in the system, because smart asset shares leads to more than one advisor at a time for whoever's in the zip code in the area where the prospect is, there's a lot of pressure to 
respond to them quickly. Like whoever tends to get the first outbound follow-up to the client has a drastically greater likelihood of, of actually getting the meeting with them. And you're in meetings like six hours a day through most of the days of the week. So like, how do you respond to smart asset leads in a timely manner? How do you stay on top of them? How does that work when your smart asset time is on top of these like high intensity meeting flows? That's a great question. So when I first, first started, which was in October of 18, it was still me trying my best to send a text, get on the phone as quick as I could in between a meeting if there was an opportunity. Sometimes I wouldn't get to them until the end of the day. Um, they were still converting. It still worked. I had a really good experience with Smart Asset like right off the bat, which possibly, you know, I've heard other advisors with maybe a less than stellar experience. That just wasn't my experience. But I actually have a friend slash peer who runs an insurance company. And we were talking in kind of like a networking group about his Dave Ramsey leads, my smart asset leads. And he had built out an automation to help his insurance reps with the volume of leads they were getting based on his budget. And so he basically just said, look, I'll just mock up what I have. Of course, I paid him to do it. But I built out an automation, I think within three months of the smart asset lead flow to where it used to be a Slack Ring Central automation. Uh, it's now a software called Agency Zoom, which is basically just for insurance people. And I'm using it sort of off label for me. But I automate it now. I used to do text voicemail drop email, and then they ban voicemail drops. So now it's just a sequence of text messages that go out. They're very conversational. It sounds like as if I myself actually was messaging this. In fact, one of mine, like the third one says, hey, just want to make sure you got my last text, question mark. And of course, all of this is assuming that they haven't replied back. At the point that they reply in an email or a text, the automation sequence stops. It automatically unenrolls because it knows that you have to start the conversation at that reply. So for instance, last night, I got a smart asset lead. My, and it's at six o'clock and I'm at my daughter's volleyball game. My automation's happening through Ring Central without me even knowing it. And then I go and I was actually working the concessions. I signed up concessions at volleyball. So I'm working the concessions and I go and I look at my phone and there's all these Ring Central messages that have happened where he basically replied to my automation and said, sure, you know, I can talk between two and four tomorrow. So then I said, okay, sounds good. I'll call you at 2.15 because I do have a, a client who canceled for today. And so I plan to call him today at 2.15. But my automation does everything. Now, for some reason, if Ring Central, the text messages don't go through where it says not delivered, can't deliver. That tells me it's a landline, which is sort of more common in the villages. Even though everyone has cell phones, when they're filling these surveys out, they tend to default to a junk email address and a landline that they know they'll never answer um, because they're just trying to see what results they get and maybe they're not serious. So if I can tell it's a landline because my messages aren't going through and I have time 
I'll call it. If for some reason I don't, I still put the email into my Tuesday talks through constant contact. So every week I'm pushing the leads in to where I'm at least dripping on them with that email. My emails will still go out, which I go out for an entire year. At first it's more, and then it's like a two-month email, and then I send a six-month email, and then I send a one-year email. So it's not obnoxious. Um, And that's it. I win some, I lose some. I don't have a ton more energy to put into it other than that. And I don't love getting on the phone. Um, So I, I really try my best to just let my automations take over. And if they're serious, they'll reply. And if they're not, they won't. So I want to make sure I understand these automation, just literally how it works. So I just walk me through a little bit more step by step. So literally like you get a lead from smart asset, which as memory serves, you basically comes through as an email. Like you get an email in a standard templated form that says like, here's the name, here's the phone number or email address and, and, and whatever information they provided. And like that comes in as an email lead. Correct. So where does that email go for you? Like, does that come to your personal email inbox or is that already going someplace else special that's starting some sequence of things? It does go into my inbox. Okay. The mechanics of the automation are what I'm not as familiar with because I paid a guy to do it. But I know I have two separate emails. I have Suzanne at, and then I have S Powell at. Because okay. Lexington zip codes get a specific email worded, you know, worded for Lexington, and the villages, Florida zip codes get a specific email worded for the villages. And in order to distinguish those, just like an insurance company okay. would with different insurance guys, yeah, um, I have to pull the zip code to this email, pull the zip code to this email, to where. The text messages are identical, but the email they're getting is specific to the city. So what's the first thing? Like the email comes in from Smart Asset. It's either to S. Powell at or Suzanne at because one basically means it's a Lexington lead. One means it's a it's a Villages lead down in Florida. Uh, so now at least you, you know you know which locale they're at. So they get the Lexington, Kentucky sequence or the Villages, Florida sequence. Mm-hmm. So do these emails forward someplace? Is it literally like Outlook is or whatever you use for email is is making automation-y things happen? Like how, how do the emails get from an email inbox that you're not present at because you're at, at the kids' sports games into a, a, a place where automation-y things are happening? <laughs> this is the magic of... Slack and agency Zoom. They use a company called, I think it's Zapier. I, yep. I, I can see it. Yep. I actually go, if I go to my sent folder, I can see what automations triggered that day from old leads and new leads. So I see them as if they okay. have went out by so, me. But the logistics is a little beyond my pay grade, which okay. is why I wrote the check <laughs> to have it done. And is Ring Central just literally like where your office phone line is in the first place so they're tying to ring central because that's just where your where the company phone number is to text people and communicate that way no our company uses some it company for this the phone ring central is how we get the text out the door 
and how we used to get the voicemail to drop. The email, I believe, is still happening within agency Zoom. I don't think Ring Central has anything to do okay. with that. Ring Central appears like the text messages stay in Ring Central. I have to go in on my phone and okay. text back through Ring Central. But they're they're what's getting me the cell phone part right. of the dialogue. So if for for a reason I let's say I didn't text at all. I probably wouldn't even need Ring Central. If all I was doing was say a sequence of emails, right? Agency Zoom would probably stand alone at that point. And and so ultimately these things come in, and so Agency Zoom now has created a series of essentially automatic follow-ups. So the smart asset lead gets some combination of an email and or a text message. Thanks for reaching out. My name is Suzanne Powell. I you know, would love to explore your situation further. When can we call or meet? Yeah, and, I want 10, just, 10 minutes to chat. When do you have okay. time? And then if for some, by the third or fourth one, I'm sending them a Calendly link, which is just an intro call okay. with a 15-minute block. Okay. Yep. But but you don't have to be there for them because you know the – Hey, thanks for reaching out. I'd love to connect with you to learn more about your situation. You can basically just have as a generic template that doesn't need to be specific for them. So that's queuing up immediately. Agency Zoom makes that happen automatically. So the moment the lead comes in, they are getting a response, quote, from you, but you don't have to be there at the keyboard or the phone to do it. Uh, they get the first contact immediately through agency Zoom, and then the moment they actually reply or engage, now you're to a more manual process. But presumably, at that point, you've you've made first contacts. So you don't have to be like super instantaneous response anymore. Now we're down to normal human interactions. Exactly. And then because I'm texting, I look human. You know, right, it's, right. it's weird, but so many people prefer text now. They and because iPhone and Android's gotten really good with the spam blocker service. Yeah. AT&T is offering the spam blocker service. If I try to call, most of the time I'm getting like not even a ring. It's just going direct to voicemail because my number is not in their contacts. Therefore, I'm blocked. The texts still go through. So, of course, they can unsubscribe. They can opt out. If they reply the word stop, no, you know, it, it automatically right, unenrolls right, right. from the sequence. But it just appears to be, I'm more real when I'm sending a text, you know? So the response rate on text is very high. Very rarely am I getting something through email other than, hey, thanks for the email, but we've been texting, so I'll see you Tuesday. You know, it's more like a okay. a follow-up to our conversation as opposed to a conversion from the and, email. And out of curiosity, do you know what, what do you pay agency Zoom to make all the all the automation magic happen? They bill me monthly, I think $150 a month. Okay. So I mean, very, very much. This isn't a like $10,000 a year service. Oh, thing. no, no. No, and Ring Central is $20, maybe $15. It's super cheap. So, so I can see now I you've had some traction with smart asset just in, in a world where there is some some pressure slash reward to uh to be able to respond quickly you've you've built the automations that make sure you are 
basically responding instantaneously when it comes in because computers can automate this immediately. So you're, I would imagine you're almost always first contact back to prospects, which means you you get to win the majority of the people who are willing to meet to actually get to a first meeting. Absolutely. And now it's key though, zip codes matter. There are some fellow advisors who I've talked to over the years where smart asset just wasn't their thing because say, you know, the way smart asset works, you have to sort of do a 20 mile surround and hypothetically in Chicago, it just doesn't work very well. Right. People want to bit... operate in like a one mile radius of you. Right. But in the villages, so smart asset qualifies advisors based on you four records. And I currently don't have complaints or a ding on right. my U4. And so the reality with, unfortunately, some advisors is in their career, their span of 30 plus years of doing business, they may have a complaint. And so they're in spe- specifically in the villages, when I go to match, I am actually the only one that is in the villages they match with. The next closest mm. advisor is 45 minutes away. And then most mm. of the time they're matching with either personal capital or Fisher as the third option. Right. So if they Proximity want a national firm with no with nothing local, they they have that choice. But if they actually want local and the geography matters to them, you're right there. I'm usually the only one with an office that they can golf cart to. And they actually ask that. Oh, yeah. Hey, in the villages, your, yeah. yes. It's all about whether you can golf cart to it. Where's your office? What road are you on? Because they're trying to determine their house compared to you. Yeah. And yeah, so proximity matters in the villages. And the good news is I'm in the villages. And because there's so many folks moving down there and have been for quite a while, eventually, sometimes they get a little sick of the guy who is on the East coast who doesn't really reach out to them. You know, they want personal touch. They want to actually see the person. So it's a little bit of an opportunity that I've taken advantage of, which I think may not last forever, but it works. And then what do you spend on smart asset for the lead flow that you're getting? Like what does this activity cost you? I only do the top two tiers, which is the 250 plus, and then the I don't know, the 500 or 750 plus. And my budget- Meaning 250,000 plus asset minimum and 750,000 plus asset minimum? Yes. Yep. My budget can vary anywhere from 3,000 a month. It's currently 1,500 a month. Depending on my, not so much my mood, but how often I think I'm going to get there. The more leads I get, the more- expectation I have to have more in-person meetings, which means instead of maybe two Saturdays away, I have to spend three or four. And if I, my daughter isn't volleyball season right now, she's got tournaments on Saturdays. And so I'm trying to manage my lead flow based on my budget. Because in part, you're, you're trying to grow more of your practice in Florida because that's the future. So you're primarily buying lead flow at the villages, but you still live in Lexington, Kentucky. So filling the calendar with a bunch of prospects means getting on a plane as you do this shift for yourself. Correct. Yeah. Sometimes they Zoom. Um, I actually have a prospect I'm meeting with next week via Zoom on a weekday. And I give them that flexibility. Hey, if you're fine to meet 
through Zoom, conference calls. I can do weekdays. If it's got to be in person, it's this Saturday or it's this Saturday. What's What do you want to do? Yes, I do have an office. Yes, I'm real. Eventually we will meet, but what do you need right now? So if my flow, my lead flow dials up and dials down, my budget adjusts monthly. They've just recently raised their rates again. So what used so $3,000 used to buy me approximately 22 leads. I think it, now it may be 15 to 17. Okay. Um, because so, you just pay per lead. Correct. Pay, pay by, based on the asset tier. Um, so if I don't care that to have a ton of leads because I have referrals coming in organically or I've got some new prospects closing from just other places, then I'll change my budget. And then if there's a particular month where I'm like, hey, I really want to hit it hard, um, which may be what my November looks like, then I'll dial my budget up and go four or $5,000, but that's unusual. I guess that's the nice thing for smart asset kinds of systems, like just the lead flow is pretty instantaneous for when they're doing it. So you want more leads this month, turn up the dial this month. You want fewer leads this month, turn down the dial this month. You just yep. get to turn the dial. Yeah. And my account Good manager deal. actually will tell me, we are getting a lot of leads in the villages. Like I've had this conversation with them maybe twice in two years. And um, if you leave your budget just at 2000 you're probably going to be capped out by like the 15th of the month. Do you want to bump your lead flow up? And so Fisher, okay, Fisher Investments pays Smart Asset a lot of money. And I do believe that that's like their primary client. And they prospect in various zip codes, but they're very heavy. It's evident in Florida because they're always matching against me. I don't know what their budget looks like. But I know that Smart Asset gets to work with their budget, and I'm kind of piggybacking on that too. Uh-huh. And so, if Smart, if their lead flow is really heavy, they want to try to put three advisors in a match. But sometimes, right, if, right, like for right. instance, if I'm not paying for them, they may only see one or two right. match. And so they'll tell me they'll go, "Hey, yeah. we've got a ton so, of leads, no one matching. Are you sure you want your budget this low?" So when you talk about this flow, like I spend. $3,000, I get 22 leads, or maybe a little bit lower now that they raise their per lead price. But I spent $3,000, I get 22 leads. How many of those would would you expect to become clients? Like what, and what asset flow would you expect? Like just, you, you've said you've been, you've been happy with the experience and how it converts, but I like, I don't know what the context is. Like what's, what's a good outcome on a $3,000 month spend and 22 leads? My conversion rate's always been high. In fact, Smart Asset has, over the years, brought other people, like not advisors, but their internal people to meet with me to figure out how I'm converting at a higher percentage than normal. I've explained the way I structure my emails, the the words I use, my subject line, my texting. And I think because I'm authentic when I speak in my email and my text, it sounds like me. It's not a long form or short form sales script, but Lexington leads convert at a slightly different rate. We have a higher density of really good planner guys here. And in Lexington, if I get four leads, I'll get easily one in a meeting, 
usually, I mean, my, my conversion rate once they're in a meeting is like 80%. So I do expect to convert one out of four, but it could be one out of five. And there's months, notoriously April, April's a weird month where I, I've gone back to my account managers and asked, you know, are these people even real? Like nobody's, nobody's on the other side, what's happening here. And then I'll have a great month like May where everybody's real and they all call me back and I meet with them and it's amazing. So it it ebbs and flows, but in the conversion rate in Lexington, it's about, you know, one of four. The average account is about six fifty, and then in vil- the villages, for every four leads, it's two and a half meetings, and I'm converting traditionally at least two. So, for instance, out of the three on Saturday, I've already closed one. One's going to be a plan, and the third lady I have to follow up in three weeks when she gets back from her cruise. So they, I think they will all close. And what are average account? sizes from those like just what kind of clients are you getting everything in the villages is over a million sometimes it's two but i just think about the math of this if three thousand dollars buys you even at at today's price in like 15 to 17 leads when you're converting anywhere from i mean one and two to one and four like you may you may get four to six clients from a a three thousand dollar marketing spend and these are clients that are i guess you said like 650 average in lexington million plus in in the villages so like three thousand dollar spend maybe two three million plus in in new assets and and revenue that's coming in like that's a that seems like a phenomenal ROI on the oh, yeah. I, on so the marketing spends. Like, wow. I applied for your summit last year and actually yeah. was speaking specifically about this automation smart asset yeah. if, if I if I got it and had to math out the leads I've gotten, the money I had because I had never put it to a spreadsheet before. It was uh, 55 households and mind you, I'm only lead flowing six months out of the year, 55 households. I had $60,000 in paid planning fees. My AUM has gone from 30 million to 105. And all I've ever done is smart asset or normal client referrals. And of course, some of that's the market, but the market hasn't been like great the last couple of years. So, oh my goodness, I've paid for smart asset for so long. I'll never stop, you know, but that's been me. I mean, from thirty million to one hundred and five million is just phenomenal growth, and it just, I guess, even guess me. Like, what is that spend? I mean, I'm just envisioning like th- you're spending fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars a month. You're spending six months of the year that you're doing this, so like you're in like ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year times five years that you've been doing this. Like, it, it's maybe a hundred thousand dollars of of marketing spend, but you went from 30 million to a hundred million plus in, in assets, which is like yeah. $700,000 of annual recurring revenue for a hundred thousand dollars of marketing spend and $150 a month to agency zoom who seems to be really earning it. Right. Plus the planning fees, which I created yeah. planning packages when a weird nuancey thing happened with three smart asset leads in a row where they didn't convert. And I was super surprised and 
confused and realized AUM model isn't the only way to go. Like that's what Chase does. That's what Wells Fargo does. So that's what I was organically used to. But, you know, I was like, how can I help the DIY engineer guys who have these spreadsheets built out, but want the Monte Carlos and want the software to just back up their assumptions because that's originally what I went to college for and, and that's sort of my tribe and, and they weren't converting. And so I implemented plan, like planning as a consulting service. I built through advice pay because there was a gap that I wanted to fill based on my own experience with not converting. And so that is $60,000 now in planning fees since I started that in 2019, which they're by itself is almost paid for smart asset. So it's, I mean, it's worked all the way around and thankfully that's been my experience with smart asset, but I have learned based on feedback from peer groups and meetings that I've been to that not everyone has had those same experiences. And I guess I'm lucky the zip codes I'm in work. Maybe they're because we're, they're both considered maybe smaller towns versus big metropolises i'm not sure about the logistics it just well and it works again to me in in a world where there's still a lot of pressure to be the first responder and make initial contact just this whole automation system you've created to get out to people so quickly i would imagine is also a a material factor in moving the needle on results on the conversion rate i hope it is (laughs) so what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? That's a good question. Um, Capacity has always been a question for me. Most advisors set that goal of 100 million and 100 clients, right? Like that was my thing. I'm going to get to 100 million, I'm get to 100 clients. And now that I've bypassed 100 million and 100 clients, I've had to think bigger. What do I really want out of life? Where do I really want out of the next 30 years of my career? Because I thought 100 million and 100 clients was my end game. And I've learned there is no end game for me. I will add more people. I will find the way to scale. I will hire more assistants. I brought my husband into the business. I want to help as many people as I can. And if they want my help, I want to help them. And I don't, I don't want to say, oh, I'm at capacity. I can't help you. So that really surprised me now that I'm there. I thought, wow, okay, I don't really want to stop. I'm not done yet. <laughs> you know, like I got to keep going, right. keep going, keep going. If I could hold everyone in my arms and take care of everybody, I, I actually probably would. However many million that is, I don't know. I do at some point intend or want to own my own firm, but my arrangement at Meridian is so amazing. The people here are great. Everyone likes each other. The vibes are positive. My revenue share is fantastic. If I did go and break off on my own, I wouldn't actually get to keep as much money as I get to keep now with a whole lot more stuff. But there is a point where trying to think about, you know, my kids or bringing my kids into the business, my husband, and just kind of what I, what I'm really seeing where the money may not matter so much. It's more about legacy and creating something bigger. So that's something I'm always thinking about too. So what was the low point for you on this journey? There's a story that was written about me a couple years ago. 
It's like a paid marketing piece when you're trying to get, you know, in Forbes and say you have been or whatever. And it, I speak about my childhood, you know, basically growing up in a trailer park outside of Detroit and the fact that I essentially hadn't finished my degree after four years of college. So when I went to college originally for engineering and was on a scholarship, took a really large class load, got slightly overwhelmed, decided to take a semester off. Meanwhile, I'm in a sorority. I'm doing a lot of work for them and spending a lot of time at literature tables recruiting, which meant inevitably I wasn't going to all my classes because again, I'm sacrificing myself for the whole Four years rolls around and I had been chapter president, I had been Panhellenic president, done all the things. And they're like, okay, you know, your pledge class is going alum now. And I'm looking at my transcript and I had 30 credits. You know, I hadn't, <laughs> I got nowhere yet. I was the best recruiter in our sorority and I ran the whole organization, but I, I had sacrificed my class time and therefore didn't get what I needed done. So I've spent the last 20 years taking online classes, Bank One paid for them, Chase paid for them, Wells Fargo paid for them. And then when I broke off, you know, I was like almost done, but I was paying for it myself um, to where I officially have a four year degree. I think it's Bachelor of Science and I think it's Bachelor of Science with a concentration in financial planning because I built the 18 capstone credits for the CFP into the program. It was a program offered by Southern New Hampshire University. So I walked, I actually walked last year. Like we flew out to Boston, went to SNHU, wore the cap and gown. My daughter was with me, cry my eyes out, about to cry. Because these years that I've been working with people, didn't have the degree. Chase took a chance on me. They got me licensed. Wells Fargo knew that I had crushed it at Chase, so they just brought me aboard. When I went to Meridian, everyone came with me because they love me. I don't have the thing on the wall. It was not that it's a low point, but when you're talking about FOMO, you know, failure, credibility, and what do other people have that I don't have? I had a ton of experience. I made up with it by reading a lot of books and plugging into your newsletters and doing all the things to get the information because I do love to read and I love this business. So this is what I actually enjoy partaking in even on the weekends and the nights. So it's not that it was a low point, but for me, the one thing that, you know, kind of under the radar was the fact that I've been managing assets for clients since 2000 and, but hadn't completed my degree until 2022. And you said you weaved CFP capstone into it. So does that mean you're you're now pursuing CFP certification as well or queuing up CFP exam? Yeah, I'm legally allowed to call myself a CFP candidate. This is per their guidelines for two yeah. years. Once you finish your capstone and you've met all your requirements, which happened in June of last year, I have two years to where I can say on my LinkedIn profile that I'm a CFP candidate. If I do not sit for that test by July of 2024. I have to remove that from my profile. I don't get to brag about it anymore. Not that I'm not a candidate, but I just don't get to say it out loud. So my intention is to sit for the July CFP exam, um, which means that I will likely use some of this off time where I'm not client facing to do my studying in the same, you know, hours that I would have normally given to client meetings. So it's not eating into my kid family time. Um, so that's the next step that I would like to, I would like to do it. Very cool. 
So how does it feel checking that off? (laughs) It was emotional, very emotional for me. And I'm not a super emotional crybaby kind of person. I'm very analytic. I'm the thinker. I'm left-handed. So I'm analysis, analysis, analysis. And when I was walking across the stage and even sitting there, I, I swear I cried for like an hour straight. So yeah, it's exciting. I'm glad it's done. You know, it was the thing that you would dream about sometimes, which was always a bad dream, but yeah. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell younger, earlier advisor you from 10 or 20 years ago? Oh, that's a good question too. Um, You know, I did it right. There were male and female advisors, both, that used to look at me like I was competition, be fairly trite, not nice, not share ideas. And I never appreciated those people, of course, but felt, um, I don't know, undervalued or felt less than. And so when I had an opportunity, like Chase used to actually have the new advisor shadow me because of my closing ratio and the volume of money that I would close. And when I had an opportunity to coach other advisors, which I still do, like I still am in groups and get outreach from other advisors throughout the United States. I coach, like I give them the help. I give them the free advice. I plug in and I share. I share what mutual funds and ETFs I'm putting people in. I share my process. I share my packaging. And so if I could go back 20 years to the Susie that used to work at a branch and say, you know what? You're going to do it right. Keep helping. It's for the good of the whole. The better advisors are, the better we all are. The more women advisors that are successful, the more women will come into the business. We need more women advisors. You know, how do I help that? The one way that doesn't help is by acting like you're better than them, that your information's yours, that everything's proprietary. I can't operate like that. I give it all away, even if it costs me money to make. And that's worked for me. So I would just probably tell her to keep on keeping on. (laughs) Like, you've got it. You're gracious. You're helpful. Don't stop. So any other advice for just younger, newer advisors coming into the the profession today? How they intentionally lead would be entirely up to them. Some people like to do workshops, which I appreciate, seminars. I get it family, friends, the door knock, Edward Jones model, respect it. Whatever works for them and their city and their status, it, it works. Just, you know, obviously don't give up. Sometimes the thing that you're working on today doesn't pay you tomorrow. There are smart asset leads that I convert on an annual basis because they're in those Tuesday talk trips where I lead flow with them like their lead was three or four years ago. Um, So just because someone isn't buying in today doesn't mean they're not keeping up with you. And, you know, just making sure that you're authentic and you're credible and that, you know, you're going to be a good fit for them. So I, I would tell people just keep doing whatever's working, but you have to repeat it and be consistent. It will pay off. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just that that word success I means very different things to different people. And you, you've had this wonderful journey of success. You said that, that like 
100 clients, 100 million is a, is a milestone for so many. So you've crossed that threshold. You're setting new goals for yourself now in the business. But I'm wondering at a personal level, how do you define success for yourself at this point? So I've determined based on planning for my own clients that I don't know that I want a traditional GM Ford, lazy boy type retirement. I will likely continue in this career until my mid-70s, possibly 80s, just depending on my cognitive function. So when I think about success for me, it's building this business, which I'm doing, to where my family and kids can potentially participate depending on their strengths and if this is something that they determine that they want to do, but still have the freedom now with time and money to participate in their life, be there for them however they need it, take the trips, go have fun, do it while they're young. So it's kind of like I'm doing it as I go. I, mm. Every year I look at how I've built the practice out, how much time I give to myself that I get to spend with my family, doing fun things, going on trips. And I think this is, this is success. What's success to me is continuing this style of living for yeah. a continued period of time to where I, you know, at some point, of course, hoping that at least one of six gets into this business, we're leaving a legacy and there's something bigger at the end. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.